Welcome to Cerebronas. I'm Cynthia. And I'm Yvette. And this is episode 25. We're two Latinas from working class immigrant families navigating law school and bringing y'all raw critical analysis of law, current events, and personal politics. Why? Because we want to break down barriers set up by elite institutions and democratize knowledge. For our deep thought segment, we'll be making a huge announcement about the future of Cerebronas. For our current event segment, we'll discuss the criminal convictions of four No More Deaths volunteers for their humanitarian aid work. For our case segment, we'll discuss Oliphant versus... Do you know how to pronounce that, Cynthia? Um, I didn't look up any recording of it. Okay. I would, uh, yeah. Okay, Oliphant versus Suquamish, the case that stripped indigenous folks living on reservations of the right to arrest and prosecute non-tribal members who commit crimes on their land. But before that, let's do a quick check-in. Yvette, how are you? I'm good. I'm studying for the bar, uh, for the Arizona bar right now, and it's been nice to not have to go to work and just be able to focus full-time on studying for the bar. I'm grateful that my job gave me the time to do that. Yeah, and I'm getting to know like Tucson coffee shops and I'm grateful that I befriended Alex, who's a PhD student at the U of A, and we've been studying together. It's been really nice. I'm just kind of trying to slug through this really annoying time period of my life that I don't want to do, but I have to do. I know, especially like I would feel so much better about it if they were testing immigration law. I wouldn't even be worried about it. I'd be like, oh, this is great. But uh, there's, I'm not being tested on any immigration law, but I have to learn about family law and secured transactions and uh, torts and contracts and just things that like I'm really never going to think about again. after. Yeah, this I can't imagine that just studying for the bar just sounds awful. I know. Yeah, yeah, that's so annoying. How are you, Cynthia? I'm good. I am very deep, like almost halfway into my quarter, which is just shocking. Um, I have fellowship applications that are going to be due soon. I have most of my ducks in a row, though, so that that feels good. I just need to finish writing my application. Um, I finished registering for the bar, so the I read. Yeah, I registered for the Louisiana bar, and I don't have my job secured yet. It's it's looking good, but it's not secured yet. So having to register mm. for the Louisiana bar, because it's one of the earliest deadlines. It was February 1st, where I had to have everything done. So I couldn't wait to find out about my fellowship before registering. Yeah. And it's just been mm-hmm. so expensive. Like, I've spent so much money on on this because, mm-hmm. like, they ask for a ton of documents, for example, to be notarized. And each one cost me $15. And mm-hmm. you have to sign up to get, like, the character and fitness, exe- like, background check. And that took forever. And that also cost, like, an extra $400. And yeah. it's just, I literally have no money left in my bank account right now, but I'm going to go see if I can get some loans. Um, so it's been... Yeah, I had to take out loans. Yeah, it's been... Because it's like impractical otherwise, like how, where are you going to get that money? Like it all, I think for California, it ended up being 1300 like when you totaled everything up. And both California and Arizona require you to pay like $150 if you're going to take the test on your laptop. 
which is like, okay, obviously I'm going to take the test on my laptop. Like, why are you even differentiating this as a fee? Yeah. Um, I, I feel like I just am getting charged for everything and it's like made up. Like, why do you need $150 for me to bring my own laptop? Yeah, no, these fees are really absurd and it just really adds up. Like, I think I'm at like 1,700, 1,800 last time I checked. Mm -hmm. And I'm just, I just have no money left for the quarter. All my financial aid money has gone to that. So that was, that's been Mm -hmm. fun, but it feels good to be registered. I just need to go get my fingerprints and then I have to register for the laptop thing, but that won't happen until like about two months before the exam. So I still have time and expenses that are beginning, that are going to come up, but it's like, it's cool to be registered. It's cool. Oh, and I still haven't even paid for my bar prep program. So I need to do that. Those are also really expensive. Yeah, it's going to be 1600 for that. Because uh, I, for Louisiana, Themis doesn't have any any preps. <laughs> so, oh. and theme, I had a free bar prep course with Themis, but unfortunately, I'm not going to be able to use it. So, oh my God, that sucks. That's yeah. so weird. Yeah, well, it's like different civil law versus like everywhere else so it kind of makes sense that they don't have one for louisiana so now i so i have to pay for barbary and so that'll Mm. that'll be fun but it's it's good it feels good that i'm almost done with these things it feels very close to being done i'm like back at school and like living a life more like what i like would like to be living it's not quite what i was living in nashville or new orleans but it's closer than like before in my last years here and it's also, I do a lot of volunteer work when I'm here and getting to do that and getting back into that work has been really great. I mean, it's like I was doing it basically full time in Nashville, New Orleans, and here I'm only doing it part time, like every now and then, but it still feels really nice. And it's it's nice to be back with like folks that I've worked with for three years. Uh, so I'm, I'm enjoying myself. I'm having a good time. N- not perfect, but I'm, I'm doing okay. <laughs> That's good. It's, I, fe- I found that myself too with my three year. That was the year where I felt like I got the closest to what my goal work-life balance is. Yeah, and because of the way my, like, school schedule is set up, it, it like, goes nicely with that, uh, where there's just some days that I am in school all day until, like, 7, 8 p.m., well, like, 7.15, and and then some days where I, I don't have any classes at all. So it's really well balanced between like, these are days where I just know from like until from when the moment I wake up until the moment I go to bed, I'm only doing classwork. And then I have a, like a day and then the weekend where I'm just like, okay, I'm not going to do anything because I've been working really hard these last few days. So it's an, it's, it works out in terms of balance. That's really nice. Also, like classes are different now that you're a 3L. <laughs> so like different. things are easier. Like it's not just that like you don't like there's not the same pressure to work as hard, but it's easy to work as like produce the quality I was producing as a 1L and 2L um, now as a 3L simply because I'm more knowledgeable and have a better sense of the different areas of the law. And when I read like case books, I'm picking up on the information a lot mm-hmm. easier and like I know what to remember and what like is kind of like just irrelevant. And like I'm doing well like in my corporations class, which Nobody would have ever thought I would do well in that class, but it's like I'm doing fairly well. And I don't speak most of the time, but when it's like I'm on panel, I've I know my material. So I feel it like it's just like, oh wow, look at this. Like I'm trained law student now. I can like be a good law student. That's such a nice feeling when like the feeling of bewilderment that you feel <laughs> during one L like finally goes away and you actually like 
as a 3L come to under like it it all comes together in a way. Yeah, it really does. But yeah, so yeah, that's my that's my check-in. <laughs> Should we do our deep thoughts announcement? Yes. Do you want to go ahead? Okay. on our priorities and goals for the upcoming year we have decided to discontinue the Cerebronas podcast we have loved sharing parts of our lives thoughts hopes and feelings with y'all and the community that Cerebronas created but have decided to move on to other projects that better reflect our long-term goals I, Yvette, will remain as the host of Radio Cachimbona, a new iteration of podcasting that will highlight the fierce ongoing resistance occurring in southern Arizona and will center Central American voices. Radio reflects the fact that this new project will feature interviews and more narrative-style episodes that storytell in a way you might hear on more traditional radio shows. Cachimbona is Salvi slang for badass. If you're interested in following along, just stay subscribed to what is currently the Cerebronas feed. Radio Cachimbona's first few episodes will drop at the end of March, and there will be a total rebrand, new name, new logo, to reflect the podcast's new focus. The previously recorded episodes will remain public, as Cynthia and I would like our labor of love to be shared widely. The Instagram posts will stay up as well as a way to be a historical log of what we shared on the platform. I want to express so much love and gratitude to everyone that supported us on this journey. Cynthia, do you want to share your plans for the future? Yeah, right now I don't have any for podcast or Instagram world. I am completely uh, signing off. I don't know that that'll be permanent. I really like love having a podcast and have enjoyed getting to meet so many folks. Like the podcast has brought me into in touch with so many folks. Like I've read so many personal statements and getting to read that and you know folks sharing with me and then speaking with folks on the phone afterwards and getting to know them like that's been such such an amazing thing that I think I'm going to miss. I'm going to miss the access. But I'm, mm-hmm. you know, I'm going to start studying for the bar in a in a couple months and then I'm going to study for the bar full time, graduate law school, take the bar exam and start new work, hopefully in Louisiana as a public defender. And I know that's not going to be an easy job. It's, you know, you work weekends, you work way past five and six p.m. And I want to really focus on that. I want to really commit myself to it. And that's going to be my top priority. And in a lot of ways, it's going to be my only priority. And I want to get to know the community in which I'm going to be working in. So there's a lot of community orgs that I'm excited to join and be a part of. And so I think that's like a completely like full-time endeavor. I, as I've shared before on the podcast and in other spaces, I'm not great at separating, separating like my work life from my private life, because in so many ways, my private mission in life is what I'm doing through my work. You know, like I'm not doing work that pays the bills. I'm doing work that fills my soul. And so the distinctions there are really kind of blurred for me. And and so, you know, it's this, this you know, keeping people out of jail, keeping people out of prison, changing our systems is, is my top priority and it's going to be. And I want to be able to do it well. I want to be able to know the community that I'm working with and for. And there's so many, so, so many issues that 
touch the uh, the criminal justice system. So I know I'm going to have my hands full. So for now, that's my plan. I'm just going to focus on do doing the best I can and getting settled in in Louisiana. If that goes according to plan, which it looks like it will be. That's good. And I think it's really smart to do that self-reflection and know what your limits are and how you want to set up your work-life balance and what you want to focus on, what you want to dedicate your mental and emotional energy to. And I think that's... I feel like in the past I've fallen into the trap of saying yes to too many things and really quickly realized that that's not... it's just not an effective way to be and to serve because then you're, you're not doing your jobs well. And so I think I really respect this decision to focus on, on transitioning to Louisiana. Yeah. Thank you. It's, I'm excited. I'm really excited. I, I'm just really grateful. I get to be back. Hopefully. I mean, it's hard to say that because even though I registered to the, for the bar and, you know, things are going according to plan. My like funding isn't secured yet. So until that is, I, I can't say with confidence and like with 100% certainty, I'll, I will be back there. But I'm hopeful that I will be. And that's just so exciting. I Over the summer, I was just able to form a great community and I'm excited to, a small, small one, and I'm excited to like build on that. So yeah, I'm looking forward to it. And are you, do you have any life plans that you want to update on? I'm going to stay in my role of the, at the organization that I'm working at doing detained deportation defense, working with pro se folks. Uh, and then I will also be hustling with Radio Cachimbona on the side as well. Let's start. So I wanted to do a kind of looking back and just reflect on this work that we have produced. This is episode 25, which is wild. We mm-hmm. did this across a year and a half. When we started, I was finishing 2 a year, and you were finishing your 1L year, and now you're in your third year, and I've graduated, and I'm feeling sentimental now that Cerebronas is coming to a close. <laughs> Do you have a favorite episode? No, it, I, I really don't. I, re- I remember having a conversation once with someone like who had just like discovered that I did a podcast and like we were friends and whatnot. And he was just like, oh, which one should I listen to first? Like, which one do you recommend? And like, I remember that text exchange at first. I was just like, oh my God, you have to do this one. Like, listen to this one first. And then like two minutes later, I was like, wait, no. Also this one, like listen to this one first. This one is really good because of this. And then like five minutes later, I was like, wait, actually, if you haven't started yet, try this one. And just like, I as like just when I scroll through the episodes I'm just like oh yeah like this one I really like this one I really loved this discussion we had here on this so it's really hard for me to choose like I think there's a couple episodes where I'm like uh, I feel I don't feel like I did my best work so so it's easy for me to point out those where I feel like I didn't I wasn't at my best but in terms of the other episodes like it's hard to distinguish them out, uh, between them I think we did such a diversity of topics like yeah, I was just going to say, it's so hard to compare because we've had such different guests that do such different yeah. work and we've talked about such different yeah, things. Yeah, so it's, yeah, I can't, and there are still other topics that I feel like we neglected to get to. And I think it's just a matter of like, neither of us had the expertise or had taken the relevant classes yet. Um, but in in the general, it's, I, I can't choose a favorite episode. Do you have one? Yeah, I liked Gender as a Journey with Isa Noyola. I just feel like there were so many good gems of wisdom that I still think about. Like, like hold complexity is something that 
it's like that's actually a whole new framework that I used to think about the the world and I just loved how so actually she was our very first interview yeah and I loved that like right before she was comforting us yeah I remember <laughs> we're, like, we're like we're like oh wow we're a little nervous <laughs> and then she was like really why? And we're like, oh, this is actually our first interview. And she was like, oh, it's going to be great. Like, let's just like, talk <laughs> like friends. And she just made us feel so comfortable. And I'm so grateful for that because that helped us just create good vibes for the next interviews that we made and like gave me confidence in myself. And, and I think just really gave me a lot to think about in terms of gender and the intersections and relationships to indigeneity and reclaiming indigeneity and what that means. And how that's related to gender and so I'm just really grateful for her for coming on yeah I was really it was so dope to see her I like remember the first time we heard her speak and then I was just so enamored with everything she had to say and Mm -hmm. just so captivated and really lobbied to bring her back on campus with another organization and it was just it was wonderful that it all worked out she was so generous so so generous with her time Mm mm-hmm Yes, I sh- she has such presence, you know, like, I, yeah. I agree with that feeling of being captivated. <laughs> and I will, I also wanted to shout out Fatima, because I would say, <laughs> I feel like I kind of cheated, because I like said favorite episode and then favorite guest when really they're like, I'm kind of answering the same thing. But I really liked having Fatima on. Fatima, <laughs> I think, like, I'm just so grateful for her, because she's, she. I feel like really a day one homie, like, friends since high school and we've really seen each other grow and we've seen each other's politics grow like she knew me when I was like a little baby liberal (laughs) and yeah has just seen me grow since then and friends like that in your life are really special the ones that have seen your journey and have accepted you at those various points and people who are on the same wavelength now it's just it's really nice to have that continuity so shout out to Fatima (laughs) Yeah, she's really dope. I really liked getting to know her. Mm-hmm. She's a great Instagram oh, presence, yeah. too. <laughs> she really does. I feel like she should have more visibility. Her memes are on point, the memes she reposts. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I wanted to ask you, why did you want to do the podcast? And do you feel like you've accomplished that goal? Uh, I wanted to start it just to like help give information about the law and make sure folks, it just seems ridiculous to me that you have to be, you go, you have to go to law school to have like a, like a really good training or not really good training, but like a, a nuanced understanding of our laws and our systems. And I just don't think that should, that's how it should be. I feel like this information should be more accessible without having to like dish out all this money and all this time. And so I wanted to be able to share what I, you know, what I was learning and what I found to be important, you know, that we should all know this and we should all be able to understand the way like the world is set up against us sometimes, like, and sometimes where we have some protections that we can use and take advantage of and build on. So that, that was, I just, I felt like the things that I was learning when I got here in 1L, there were some things that were just so atrocious and I just couldn't believe that more people didn't know about it and it was because of all these issues of access so that was one one aspect of it and the other was just wanting to get more folks in who wanted to be here if if you want if law school is your goal and you're a first gen 
students especially if you're like a latina like i just wanted to make sure you knew that like that person knew i was here for them and would be able to reach out to me in somehow like some way and so that that was a, a big part of it for me as well and well those two were basically it and then I guess there's like another aspect where it was just like very therapeutic to be able to talk about what we were learning and process it. So that was also just like what what it gave me personally. And whether we've accomplished them or whether I've accomplished them, I feel pretty good. I don't feel like those are goals that were that had an end date. So I don't think they've been accomplished. But like, did I get to, you know, be in them and and be doing what I set out to do, like, yeah, I did. But are there still folks who, you know, is there more information to be shared? Yeah. Are there more folks who, you, you know, you can help lend a hand to? Like, yeah. And so that, in that sense, like, those goals were never going to be fully accomplished. What about you? Yeah, I think these are ongoing goals that we're both going to continue to try and work towards in different capacities, in different roles, on different projects but just like you said there is no end date to increasing accessibility and to sharing knowledge about the law and I think I started this I I would I really echo everything you said I started this because I felt like I didn't hear my voice in legal and political analysis and felt like you and I needed to be heard and needed to be taken seriously because of our personal experiences and because of because of every like what we're learning in law school and, and what we're setting out to do and I think that I mean I think that we we did it successfully with Cerebronas and I'm excited for both of us to continue doing it after Cerebronas too uh, just to clarify for anyone who's panicking if they've booked us for something and that's uh, gonna be happen in the next two months uh, we do have events and interviews planned that will go on as scheduled and will appear and be working in the capacity as Cerebronas. But after this point, we won't be booking any new gigs or recording any new episodes of Cerebronas. Yes. Anything? talk about the four women who were convicted who had received criminal convictions for the volunteer work that they did with no more deaths and no more deaths is a desert aid humanitarian organization that has existed for years it's comprised of volunteers who do water and food drops in strategic places along the dangerous routes that people are forced to take through the desert as they're crossing the border and the larger historical context of this is that increased militarization of the border has made it so that the only plausible places to cross the border undetected are the most dangerous to walk across, like the deadly desert of Sonora. And in the summer of 2017, four women drove to Cabeza Preta to drop off food and water, and this is a federal refuge. And this is actually one of the deadliest areas to cross. And so they were especially motivated to drop off this food and water. Natalie Hoffman, Una Halkum, Madeline and the Sheila Roscoe McCormick. I'm sure that I mispronounced somebody's name. It's okay. <laughs> it's it sounded fairly among accurate those four. To me based on the spelling. Um, 
And they uh, they were charged in December 2017 and then a few weeks ago were officially convicted. And they said that the work for No More Deaths was, their work was motivated by their religious convictions and a belief that everyone should have access to basic survival needs. They were, I mean, they were dropping off water and cans of beans because people literally die of dehydration. And so overall, there have been more than 3,000 documented deaths that occurred between 1999 and 2018. And I say documented because there are likely so many more deaths that have never been documented and we're never going to document. Yeah. Do you do you know uh, if that also that figure is that's just like on the northern side of the border, right? What do you mean? Like, that's just once you enter the U.S., that figure is only like in the U.S. Oh, I didn't I didn't know that. Well, because I'm, I'm, ex- I'm assuming they're not including, like, folks, like, on the southern side of the border. And, like, that, if you consider, like, there's some tracking of that number in terms of, like, human rights work in, the, in, in Mexico. But I'm just, like, that number is a lot bigger if you consider not, not immigration, like, from the beginning points, you know? Yeah. Like, all the places amongst where, like, immigrants travel like if you actually included all the deaths that occur along the route that number is just that number seems no, so small that's true yeah and like like i said like these are the deaths that have been documented but like they're documented because cadavers are found in the desert but like there's just so much more that occurs that it's never detected and one of the women who was convicted actually compared being in the refuge to being in a graveyard because of how many people died there which is really horrifying. And her and her three other volunteer colleagues were charged with entering federal land without a permit, and now they could face up to six months in federal prison, which is really wild when you think about the lawlessness of Border Patrol and how many deaths have occurred in ICE custody where there haven't been any prosecutions of... of the border patrol officers or ice officers meanwhile these women who are dropping off food and water to help people who are dying are going to be facing six months of prison time that's insane yeah yeah it is it's so this isn't funny but it's just so like it makes me like you have to laugh otherwise you cry because it's just like oh yeah like when i'm thinking of like if i ever have children which i probably won't but if i did like you know, the behavior of these folks is exactly what I'd be wanting my kids to like model, you know, when you think of like criminality and lawlessness, like, yeah, sure, these women's actions, it's exactly what comes to mind. It's like, right, textbook definition of of criminals, like this, like, not that I agree with any of that, but it's like, oh my god, like, this this is just ridiculous. This is so absurd. I know, it's like, what, what morality I think one of the one of the volunteers said something like, "What humanity is there left in the law if this is a crime?" I know this is just so fucking hilarious. It's like these are these are upright moral people. Like you yeah. know, like this this work that they're doing is is something we should be applauding. You know, and encouraging others to model. And like this is just ridiculous. Like the fact that now a young kid could think that could is now going to see that as criminal deviant behavior. And it's just, what, what a strange time to be alive. That's all yeah. I can say. So in his verdict, the magistrate judge 
Bernardo Velasco, said the women's actions violated the national decision to maintain the refuge in its pristine nature. And he also pointed out that they had dropped off the food and water under the mistaken belief that they wouldn't be prosecuted criminally, that they would just be fined. And it's like, of course they assumed that. Like, it's just like if we ignore all the possibilities that we have for criminally prosecuting people and just think about this in terms of morality and not the law, like, of course you would assume that you wouldn't end up being in prison for giving people food and water. It's why wouldn't the volunteers have had that assumption? And I still, I just think it's wild that this conduct is criminalized. And I think it's really dangerous and really scary to be living under this fascist administration that now is criminalizing humanitarian work. Yeah. And it's when you look at the law, right? Like, oh, what is this statute under which they're being criminalized and whatnot? Like, it's just... It's ridiculous. Like, this isn't who the law or the legislators had in mind. Not that they ever, like, have great ideas. But, it, like, that's the, that's what's so infuriating. And that's what I try to communicate to people as much as possible, like, in my personal life. Where, because folks will be like, oh, how can you defend someone you, you know is guilty? And I'm just like, you just don't understand how, like, well, not that you don't understand. But it's like, you haven't seen how fucked up our system is. In the sense that, like, this is who ends up being like falling under the weight of the law you know like these laws are meant you know for like big actors like people who end up making a lot of money you know off you know just destroying nature you know and, and refugees and refuges sorry i can't <laughs> i get worked up but like all these crimes like that we have laid out if you look at who's being charged under them like they are by no means the only people committing these acts it's just that only like individuals who are vulnerable end up getting into it like we i'm not explaining myself well because i'm just like frustrated by this but like the law doesn't apply to like the wealthy like it never applies no i just no i understand i understand what you're saying because like border patrol border patrol agents are filmed like kicking water jugs down and it's like how is that not defacing the pristine nature of the refuge well i'm thinking of like i'm thinking of like corporations you know wealthy wealthy institutions that have attorneys who tell them exactly like how to get around the law or you know like how to like avoid detection you know like the the folks there's folks who are doing actual damage, actual harm, and they're just there's a whole population that's going not held accountable. And like the only ones that are being held accountable for any kind of behavior are like folks who are vulnerable or folks like, you know, who are are working with vulnerable populations. So it's just it's that's that's what I mean. Like the like the people who are causing a lot, a lot, a lot of harm in this world are not the people who are facing like are like the wrath of the criminal justice system in this country yeah, and i want to point out that scott warren who's one of the volunteers who's facing criminal charges and who has also been charged with quote-unquote alien smuggling has said publicly that he very much thinks that all of these prosecutions are retaliatory because of the footage that i just mentioned that no more deaths published because they put out this report that documented all of like a a lot of the border patrol abuses that no more deaths observers had seen and then they also published footage of Border Patrol agents coming around and cooking down the water jugs that No More Dust volunteers would leave behind. Like, how sick. And 
the day that the report was published and that footage was published, that was when Scott Warren was arrested. And so he's always maintained that this is something retaliatory because of their of their activism, which makes sense because it's like you said, why is this a priority? It just makes you ask yourself, why are these four women dropping drugs off in the refuge a bigger concern than, like you said, corporations that are could be held liable for polluting natural reserves, natural lands, you know, like it's of all the things to be prosecuting why this and when you insert that political motive it it makes sense yeah and i wanted to talk about like the prosecutorial discretion because prosecutors have discretion on what cases to bring right like like technically anybody who breaks the law you know is if the prosecutor feels like they have a case to prove they can bring charges and they can pursue that case and like that's 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 fine but in you know when you apply it to the real world okay there's we have limited funds to pay prosecutors. We have limited funds for prosecutors to use in order to like um, investigate, right? Like police departments and whatnot. Like they have limited funds and limited amount of time. So they can't possibly prosecute everything, you know, every violation of the law. Like they, that's just like, it's not going to work. So prosecutors have discretion. They are allowed to prioritize what type of crimes they're going to focus on and what cases they're going to bring to court. And, and like when I, say this i'm ignoring all the facts that they are like much better resourced than like those defending and whatnot like let's just ignore all that for now okay so they have this discretion and like then they're using it on cases like this like that's ridiculous like like you're not like use your mind a little bit in terms of like what behaviors what messages you're sending to the community and like that they are thinking of that you know so it's like if they're choosing to prosecute these people like what is the message they're sending you know they're using their discretion in this way like they're doing it with intention you know like the messages that we're getting from it like the way we're understanding these like everything you just went through Yvette like that's exactly what they're hoping to communicate because they could use their discretion to go in a different direction but they're not and Another thing like that I wanted to point out is like prosecutors have discretion and so they have a lot of power in the criminal justice system like without a doubt like prosecutors have a lot of power and like I've heard judges say that themselves you know like prosecutors have a lot of power and Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. and but like I wanted to point out like it's not like there are other players in the system right like there's a whole lot of people who are accountable and complicit with the prosecutor's actions so like obviously the the folks the police department the whoever is investigating right and like helping them with like all of them obviously but then also like the judges in which this court happened in and like their clerks they're also responsible for this because i know judges who have told prosecutors straight up like stop bringing me these cases like every case that you bring to me that's like like a stupid 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 case like i'm gonna dismiss it like, stop bringing me these cases. And so in that way, like, judges have educated the prosecutors, like, stop bringing me these dumb cases. And so, like, the fact that these prosecutors brought these cases and won is also on the judge in the courthouse in which it happened. Like, we have to, like, we have to shame them, too, because those judges didn't have to accept these cases. They could have dismissed them. They could have, like, made the prosecutor's life difficult for bringing a case like this, you know, but but they don't. So the prosecutors are still doing it. So, like, all these checks and balances, like, everybody who's not doing their job, like, we should recognize them as such as well. Yeah, and I, I think it's fair to say that these judges and these clerks are complicit in their criminalization. I mean, they're just very obviously complicit 
and directly complicit in the criminalization of humanitarian aid that's happening across the world. Like I thought about my conversation with Cynthia Magallanes and the research that she was doing in Spain and Morocco and migration trends there. And she shared that Spain is doing the same thing that the U.S. is doing. They're also criminalizing humanitarian aid that's occurring between Spain and Morocco. And they're trying to stop people from taking boats onto the sea to stop people from drowning. And it's really disturbing that these cruel, inhumane laws that we're seeing here are happening elsewhere as well. Yeah. I, I recently watched a documentary called Undeterred that actually my friend directed. And oh, cool. Mm-hmm. I went to go see it a few weeks ago in Tucson, and it's about Aravaca residents. Aravaca is a border town that a lot of folks cross through when they're crossing um, not through a port of entry. And uh, they, what I, it, to hold the story of these residents who organized against the Border Patrol checkpoint in their town. And it was really interesting because this town is like mostly white and like white elderly folks who just really love living in a rural community and want to be left undisturbed basically by border patrol Mm -hmm. and this woman was like it's common sense to me if someone is in front of me dying of dehydration i'm going to give them water and it's scary to think about how much border patrol has to dehumanize people in order to think it's a good idea to kick over gallons of water like i think that's what's so scary to me is do these judges clerks border patrol agents like spanish officials u.s officials recognize how do like that they're dehumanizing these people and that they're saying that their lives are not worth preserving or fighting for that they deserve to die in this cruel way of dehydration in the desert because they were trying to find a better life. Yeah. Yeah, no, I I agree. I think, and it goes back to what we've talked about before in the sense that like, well, the things that you and I are asking for, the world we envision, like it benefits not just us, it liberates and gives humanity to so many others, you know? Like it's not, we're not just fighting for us. Like the world we envision, they also win. So, because we'd be able to be human. Do you have anything else? Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Okay. I think we can move to the case. Yeah. So this is Oliphant versus Saquamish from 1978. So it's not that old of a case. It's fairly recent. And... The parties are, there's two petitioners. It's one of those cases where the cases are super similar. And so the court brings them and takes them together. And so the two petitioners, they're both non-Indian. Okay, let me just say this now. Like the, in this whole body of law is called federal Indian law. And the court uses that language throughout. So like I'll sub in Native American, which is like much more appropriate where it is. But some things I'm saying where I'm quoting quoting court language it's and i'm using indian that's that's why i just wanted i always feel so i feel so weird about that but okay so both of the petitioners they're like not native american residents of the port port radisson reservation and 
So one of the petitioners, his name is Mark David Oliphant, and he was arrested by tribal authorities during the Sukwamish's annual Chief Seattle Days celebration, and he was charged with assaulting a tribal officer and resisting arrest. I'm not like I couldn't find facts about what happened, but I just learned that like he that that petitioner he like punched a tribal officer, but I wasn't able to find inf- like I didn't see any facts on like what led up to the punch or in what context or why he was around the officer like none of that but so that's what happened that's one petitioner and the other petitioner is daniel b um belgarde belgarde and he was arrested by tribal authorities after an alleged high space high speed race along the reservation highways that ended with when um the petitioner belgarde he collided with the tribal police vehicle and he posted bail and was released um so these are the the cases that happen but here's a little bit more on like the facts because the the facts is it's not so much facts like these are really undeveloped cases in terms of factual like these are very much like just issues of law cases so the facts are not like as robust as as we're accustomed to seeing so um oliphant he was arraigned before the tri- before the tribal court and after that arraignment is just where they read your charges uh and you enter a plea of either guilty or not guilty and so he was released on his own recognizance which means he didn't even have a bill to post like he was just he gave his word that he'll appear in all the court proceedings and whatnot and they like released him and i think that's important to real like like that's where this started like that's how like he Mm -hmm. was handled he was allowed to go on his own recognizance okay and then six days um, later, after his arrest um, and posting bail, uh, Belgrade was arraigned and charged under the tribal code with recklessly endangering another person and injuring tribal property. And so that that was his charges. So both of the petitioners, they applied for a writ of habeas corpus, which we've talked about before, and they applied it to the United They sent that application to the United States District Court for the Western District of Washington. And they were arguing that the uh, Suquamish Indian Provisional Court did not have criminal jurisdiction over non-Indians. And so this case, like the pre- moving to the procedural history, the district court disagreed with the petitioners and denied their petitions. And then on in 1976, the Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit, which is like the next level up of courts, they also affirmed the denial of the habeas corpus in the case of the um, of petitioner Oliphant. The other petitioner, their, his case was like just a little bit behind and hadn't been resolved when the Supreme Court took these up. So like that's that's how this all started. And that's where this is. And it's Yvette, do you want to go into the holding? Yeah. And then the Supreme Court held that uh they so they ultimately denied the they <laughs> sorry um the supreme court denied the tribe's criminal jurisdiction over non-native folks who committed crimes within reservation boundaries and the court held that this was because the power to prosecute non-tribal members was an aspect of quote unquote the tribe's external relations and they said that these external relations, prosecuting non-tribal members, was something that they had given up when they signed treaties with Congress and submitted to the quote-unquote overriding sovereignty of the U.S. And I'll note that there's no statute that explicitly says this, but the court held that it was an implied limitation. Yeah, and if you look at, because this this case was like a big deal. This case is really big because it's ultimately, 
what it stands for is if you are a non-tribal member and you go onto a reservation or tribal lands, you can commit any crime with, and the folks like the tribal courts cannot hold you accountable. They can't do anything like no sense of accountability. And so that this case was a big, big deal, like for it to come down to Supreme court and automatically affect all like, you know, coast to coast and make this the land of the law was this case is a big deal. So there's a lot of articles written about it. And several of them point out how this decision is based like on assumptions, like throughout the entire decision. It's like assuming, mm-hmm. assumed, like it's just so many assumptions that are taken. Like it's an implied limitation. Like, well, for something this big, you would want it to be based in some kind of textual analysis. Well, no, yeah. And then they're just also being like, well, we can assume this, we can assume that. And it's like, wait a minute, like you're taking a whole lot of assumptions. And they also would just like make, false statements and like don't do like an adequate analysis of the signed treaties like there's there's articles that point out how okay the like the supreme court looks at this treaty but this treaty is exceptional and unique in this way in this way like it does not represent all the other treaties and the supreme court treat well justice Rehnquist specifically treated it as if they like the the treaties he was pointing to were like standard or common and that's just like inaccurate and false like representation of them and how convenient oh yeah yeah and yeah there's plenty of articles on how just like the analysis was completely off and if they had done like a more actual like inventory of treaties and like a a robust analysis like they would have seen their mistakes but of course why they don't do things that isn't in their interest and i also just wanted to note that like in in our the u.s constitution there is like this like it's a it's it's spelled out that any powers not specifically reserved for the federal government then the state has it and it's like this basic basic principle of federalism so like if there's a, a a state wants to do something right and um Unless the federal, like in the constitution, it says like, this is only something the federal government can do, like, you know, things on immigration, the state government has the full authority to do that. Like it's the state powers are not exhaustive that are listed in the constitution. So anything missing, it's understood to be like, okay, then that's the power the states have, not the federal government. And so it's just like interesting that they don't take a similar lens or use the same framework for this, where they're expecting these treaties and everything else to be exhaustive where like we full well understand that like that's not an, a great way of going about like lining things up because there's just things that you can't foresee or circumstances that change that make if you try to line out everything it's just that framework is going to not be applicable and so quickly and they could have very well taken that approach because like it's they're starting from the place where um, tribal lands have sovereignty it's like they're not completely sovereign but they're they have their own sovereign governments and so it's it wouldn't have been in like a ridiculous framework to apply to this as well yeah i i just wonder what tribal sovereignty even means if this was the ultimate outcome of the supreme court yeah well that and that's there's that's what the issue is that there's very little sovereignty left and there's been just so many cases after cases like we're we're touching on this case but there's been several cases that really limit um the sovereignty and uh 
We'll get to the language a little bit, but I wanted to first note that this case was decided 6-2. Justice Marshall and Berger dissented. I always use Justice Marshall as a good way to see what how I'm going to feel about the case. And so, I mean, this case is famous, I already knew, but I'm really, I was really glad to see Justice Marshall dissented. And then Justice Brennan recused himself. I'm not sure why I didn't look into that. And Marshall's dissent is really simple. It's like just like five lines. And I'm going to read it because I'm going to read like two sentences because it really, I mean, just sums up how arbitrary this the majority was. Okay. In the absence of affirmative withdrawal by treaty or statute, I am of the view that Indian tribes enjoy as a necessary aspect of their retained sovereignty the right to try and punish all persons who commit offenses against tribal law within the reservation. And that's exactly what I'm saying. Like, he's taking the same framework that they apply when they're looking at federal versus state to, like, Indian sovereignty. And, And he's just like, look, here's a justice of the Supreme Court saying, like, our starting point can be the, uh, the opposite. Okay, so the majority opinion was written by Rehnquist, who I think is one of the most odious uh, yeah. Supreme Court justices that, I've, that I have to read. And he uses some language that is really telling, and I want to read one quote, and then we can discuss it. So he says, he writes, Until the middle of this century, few Indian tribes maintained any semblance of a formal court system. Offenses by one Indian against another were usually handled by social and religious pressure and not by formal judicial processes. Emphasis was on restitution rather than on punishment. Okay, so like first off, I want to point out like how awful and shady he's being by like saying like maintained any semblance of a formal court system. Like he's basically going on these old notions and like stereotypes of like oh they don't have like actual laws or anything like just completely like he's in writing that sentence like he's meaning to be demeaning he's meaning to be like their court system isn't adequate like it has been hardly developed it's just like i hate to use this word but he's totally playing on like the tropes of like oh savages versus civilized culture like you know and it's it's so sickening and like that's like completely what he's like the ideas that he's pulling on when he writes that but then i just like i like how like in the next sentence he's he's trying to critical and being like oh yeah they don't they use they handle it with social and religious pressure and like emphasis is on restitution and not on punishment which is so hilarious because like the u.s social social and religious pressures are how a lot of things are like are how a lot of disputes in American society are worked out. Like I know. It's, it's just so strange to act like the law and the court system is like the almighty, all-powerful, all-knowing, decision-making, relevant power. Well, well, what I was meaning, like, I, don't, I feel like the U.S. hasn't used, the social and religious pressures definitely are, permeate our society, but we don't resolve, like, there's still, you know, a lot of criminal... Um, actions against folks and like using the formal going through the courts and imprisonment and but what i was like saying is that what he describes sounds amazing it sounds so much better. yeah restitution over punishment that sounds great like yeah that's what i was gonna say it's like there's some like abolitionist thinking in here without him realizing <laughs> yeah and so he means this to like criticize the tribal courts when really like we should be applauding and we should be modeling this like, that sounds great like instead of like I've seen like some like a documentary last year uh, on tribal courts and 
like I'm not I mean I'm still an abolitionist but like if you just looked at the procedure that the courts used it was different in terms of like the questions the judge was asking and whatnot and like in the interviews with the judges they you know the judges had an emphasis on like community and like this is a community I live in this is a community that I want to be doing well you know so like considering that um in their in their like judge in like decision making and so it's just like this is something we should be modeling it's like you mean this to be insulting but honestly like we could learn a thing or two from them yeah definitely it's it's so strange that he's priding himself on the fact that the u.s carceral state is based on the logic of punishment yeah yeah and then getting to like what like the first part of that sentence where he's like trying to again like describe them as incompetent the language of like the language of like the violent history between the u.s and like uh, native americans is not at all hidden which is just like just no tienen pena you know like there's no they have no sense of shame <laughs> and like they write um like this is one of the sentence says from the court of appeals that the supreme court quotes so they like he they write uh the court of appeals agreed and held that indian tribes quote though conquered and dependent retain those powers of autonomous states and so the court of appeals like had an outcome that i agree with but like even in their language they're saying like conquered and dependent you know like this like there's no like there nobody's hiding here how much like this is still like a conquered people you know a conquered like somebody who's been subjugated to the united states and so i found that interesting because it's like they just it's that language is throughout you know like they are subject to the united states federal law like they are subject to like congress like it's just i i just i if i had done all these shitty shitty things and like i'm a part of the society so i like i am partly responsible but like if this was my history like I was like a clear descendant of these people. I would I would have a little bit more shame about what my people had done and they just have zero of it. I just think this construction of tribes being dependent is really ironic because it's the US's legal structure that has made it so that folks don't have true sovereignty. And so it's I just hate that characterization because it it's victim blaming. It's like oh, you're needy, you're dependent, you're leeching off of the state. And it's like, no, this is a relation, this is an intentional relationship of subjugation on the part of the U.S. Yeah, and I, I like that they use the word conquered because I'm like, that pretty much sums it up. Like, you're, it's, it was violent. It was, you know, like, yeah. And like you said, I don't think that they feel shame at all. I think if anything, it's a point of pride which is really upsetting when you think about the effect that this decision has ultimately had on Native women. More than 60% of American, of Native American and Alaskan Native women have been physically assaulted and one in three have experienced rape or attempted rape in their lifetime. And this is a really important statistic considering what the holding of Oliphant was. Nearly all, 97% of these women, have experienced at least one act of violence committed by somebody who is not Native. And this is according to the DOJ's National Institute of Justice. And I, th I just think that Native women are the ones who are suffering so directly and tangibly from this policy. And it's 
disgusting to think about this framework that's created where people who live around reservations feel free to like you said just trespass and and commit sexual violence against indigenous women and know that they'll they'll suffer no repercussions for that and it's it's sickening yeah i also saw a connection to puerto rico in terms of the similar colonial type subjugation. So the U.S. tried to fix this issue of rampant violence against Native women. And so VAWA was passed. And specifically, there was a special domestic violence criminal jurisdiction statute that was added to the Violence Against Women Act when it was renewed in 2013. And that statute was supposed was granting supposed to grant tribes jurisdiction over non-native folks in instances of domestic violence, dating violence, or violations of protection that occur within reservation boundaries. If the victim identifies as Native American, um, the non-native person works or lives or has an intimate relationship on tribal lands, and. It turns out that this law didn't really have any kind of tangible impact because very few tribes are compliant with the law. And it's because the law requires the tribes to provide counsel for those who can't afford it. And there are just simply insufficient funds to do so. And so I thought about Puerto Rico and, and how like Puerto Rican citizens want sovereignty they want to be mm, able to mm-hmm. rule themselves as a nation state and they're not able to because of these constraints that the u.s has created on their economies and like with with native folks i thought it was important to point out that bawa reauthorized appropriation five million dollars annually to be distributed to assist tribes from 2014 to 2018 and as of 2016 only 2.5 million had been appropriated and it just makes me wonder like what true sovereignty looks like and just because reparations are due like if if this five million appropriation is insufficient to you know to have counsel for every defendant then the u.s you know should provide money to amplify the court system in whatever way native folks want to like sovereignty I, i think is more than just a name you can't just tell someone you you can't just sign a document and say now you are sovereign like because of the specific historical relationship between mm-hmm. the u.s and native folks the u.s needs to give reparation uh it's it's just so frustrating to me to see sovereignty chipped at in through the case law and also like, on the ground through how funding is allocated too yeah and it's i think i i it's important that folks like hear what you just said and re-listen to it because it just points out how you know this conflict that started like hundreds of years ago has continued like it's not over like the the subjugation of an entire peoples that have been treated awfully like continues you know like yeah we think of it as so so historical Mm -hmm. but it's not historical it's current it's actively happening and it's still actively getting worse you know so it's easy to look at the past and be like, oh, if I had been like in the United States, like in the 1800s, I would have thought differently or, you know, like that then it would have been my time and place. Like, well, the time and place still continues. Like there's still time to do something and there's still time to like just get educated on these issues. 
because we're talking about eradicating violence against women and currently it seems like our carceral state is the only mechanism that we have for trying to fight that and that's ultimately in the background of this case is this issue of funding allocation for courts that will could ultimately incarcerate people and so I just wanted to ask you how you thought about that how you grapple with that because I think the abolitionist framework, I think, is most difficult when you're talking about gender-based violence. I think, well, <clears throat> I think this has to just, this entire case, it's just dealing with, like, criminal liability, right? Being able to, like, <clears throat> take someone to prison um, for their for actions they, they committed. And so it's, the issue is not particularly difficult for me just because it's, like, there's connection to, like, women, gendered violence. Like, that, to me, like, prison and criminal, you know, criminal actions, like, I don't see as a, a good route in any of them, um, in any, for any, to resolve any of these issues. But I, the way I still, like, see, like, why I still see this case as a bad case and something that shouldn't have happened is because I don't think, like, we can have, like, abolitionist conversations in, in a vacuum. You know, we live in a complex world with complex, histories and and power dynamics lots and lots of power dynamics you know so like to sit here and say oh like this case ultimately like got us closer to like a prison free world like i'm not gonna sit here and say that like that's just like that seems like a non-nuanced um assessment and so like i just you know i want to move towards a prison free world and i think you know there's a lot we can learn from tribal courts i'm hoping to take a class next quarter and like really educate myself on different issues but in the meantime, like, I don't think, like, one of the things that pisses me off the most about our criminal justice system is that it holds, like, poor people accountable, not wealthy people. Yeah. And so, like, almost exclusively. Yeah. And, like, this is kind of, like, taking us to a different conversation. But it's it's how, it's this, it's the same framework that I used to think about this, where, like, you know, folks are, con- like, constantly asking me like oh are you still listening to this artist or that artist and it's always tends to be like a black art like male artist and like where things like information will come out about like gendered violence that that person has committed and like i'm i'm all for holding people accountable and like yeah like let's not support artists who we know commit violence but at the same time i'm just like but where the fuck are all the white country artists like i'm sure they're committing gendered violence at like where where's all the accountability of them like why are we only okay like holding like black rap artists accountable and like so in some points i'm like i'm sorry like i'm not gonna get into a tizzy like holding this one person accountable until i see like country artists also being held accountable like folk artists also being held accountable you know like it's just like so in that like are you talking about r kelly no not r kelly because i feel like he's a particular very very particular case but i was gonna say everyone should boycott and mute r kelly (laughs) to be clear that's the official set of bonus position yeah and like it's a pretty egregious case but like i'm just thinking across like the time well it's like usually black artists and and so I'm just like not okay with that. And in the same way, like I'm not okay with like the U.S. imposing its like, you know, continuing like like it's awful like conquering things on another like more on these communities. Like no, like and also like I'm not a I'm not a member of the like tribes. Like it's not up to me like what they do. That's how I think about it too. Like it's not it, like I can like say like oh you know these are my principles, but it's not a part of my community. Like I can't just like be here like i'm not gonna like sit here and demand germany do something different you know like because it's none of like 
Germany, keep your Nazis in check. That's what I'll say. (laughs) If I moved there, like, and I was a part of the community, like, that'd be different. But until then, you know? Exactly, yeah. I'm not about holding, like, some people accountable and not others. Like, I'm sorry. Especially when power dynamics come into play. That's how I resolve it. And I think I... That's how I resolve it as well for myself is this ultimately is about sovereignty over anything and native folks have been denied that for hundreds of years and so i just think that the first step is to truly grant sovereignty autonomy and decision making to native folks so that they can govern themselves the way that they want to and i have an abolitionist framework and i'm willing to talk to anybody about it but this is not a decision about me it's not i'm not a part of this community and so i think I can be an abolitionist and also recognize that this case was wrongly decided. Yeah, and I, I just moving towards like what's happened since this case, because again, it's like the litigation. I like I've heard folks who study federal Indian law say like every time the Supreme Court takes a case on federal Indian law, we cringe and we get ready because it's like hardly ever good outcomes. And so when Scalia was no longer in the court and there was like only eight justices, there was this other case that came up that was Dollar General versus like the Mississippi Band of Choctaw Indians. And that one ended up on a 4-4 split, which meant that this, um, the level, the Court of Appeals opinion held. But that case almost took people's civil, like took tribal um, courts ability to like adjudicate civil issues. So for example, like in that specific case, Dollar General was operating on on a tribal on tribal lands and like with agreements right like they they were employing people they had um native folks working there but they like the manager was a non-native and like he was non-tribal member i think that's important to recognize that's like more common than people realize it's it's super strange to not have jurisdiction over people who like there's non-tribal members who actually live on reservation land yeah yeah and so the the manager in this case was like was accused alleged of having um like committed sexual assault towards this like there's 13 year old boy that was working there like he was in like an intern um like quote unquote and an intern for dollar general yeah and really suspicious well it just speaks to like job opportunities on tribal lands job training i just am worried was that was that little boy paid like i'm not sure this sounds like a labor violation I'm not sure about that, but so he was, um, he had made like sexual advances towards him and whatnot. And so the family, I don't know, I think it was the family who brought the case. Like they were trying to get civil damages against the person, which means like uh, monetary, right? Or like some order sort of like injunction, like non-criminal. And the court like was one vote away. Like if Scalia had been on that court, if like the current court as it looks like now had taken up that case, like it's very likely, uh, tribal courts would have lost the ability to adjudicate civil matters that involved a non um non-natives and that's just like when you think of that that's just like ridiculous and awful and scary and so dollar general ended up like on a 4-4 split but i just wanted to point out and that's like a more recent case from like 2015 or something so yeah just again pointing out like these this continues this is really terrifying it's just very terrifying to think about how the future court might rule on something if it the issue comes up again for another reason yeah yeah so i think it's important to keep an eye out on this okay so i wanted to close out in our traditional style with recommendations 
So I wanted to recommend the book Recovering the Sacred by Winona LaDuke. She's a Native scholar, and I really appreciated the book because she takes you through various sacred sites uh, that are on non-Native reservation land. And uh, she goes through the ways in which that has caused huge disconnect for folks' spirituality. And she also talks about... um, seeds and seed production and how that relates to nutrient density and um, modern agricultural trends and how that relates to rising levels of diabetes for native folks on uh, who do live on reservations and it's just it's like really important factual and historical context that explains a lot of what native folks continue to go through today so I really recommend it. Oh, yeah, and then I also recommend tuning into Radio Cachimbona. Ah. (laughs) Okay, I think I remember. Okay, so I wanted to recommend a specific um, tarot reader that I really like on Instagram. And her handle is Solaris the High Priestess, with high being H-I-I. And I really, really like her, and I recommend folks follow her. And, you know, if you're interested in getting a tarot reading, like, get it by her. I like I got a tarot reading with her after my friend recommended her and she's just like it was just such a great conversation and just like such such great energy and she's in Austin Texas and an amazing amazing reader and so I just really wanted to recommend her and if folks um yeah I I, I'm big on supporting folks who are like entrepreneurs and doing their thing and trying to make a living from what they love and so yeah I really recommend getting a reading with her I think she's amazing and I think you you won't regret it at all so that's my final recommendation cool well this is our last sign off as Cerebronas so I hope you all enjoyed our last episode bye Yeah, yeah. Who it is, son? Huh? Hey, yo, my dog's over.